All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight, if you want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, that's where we'll be, Hebrews 6. If you sign up for the class that starts this Saturday, that biblical citizenship class, they're asking if you can to go ahead and uh, make an account. You should have gotten an email or received an email from Alex. Um, if you did, open an account, and then you'll get a digital copy of the workbook that you need. Um, it would be ideal if you could use that digital copy. If you can't, that's fine. Uh, we have some uh, on hand and a few coming, but we haven't received that second box of books yet, of course. That's how it always goes. Um, so if you can use a digital copy, that would be great. They'd appreciate you using that, at least for the first week. So if you received your email from Alex, then uh, go ahead and make your account and get that done. So That'll help them out a lot and take a little bit of pressure off them. Let's see, anything else happening that's coming up? I don't think so. Oh, potluck. Yep, next Sunday. And uh, great night last night, drop off. Yep, we got that. Um, wonderful harvest party last night. Had such a good time. It was neat to see all the kids. Um, my kids were, were totally blessed. I think they all were. They really enjoyed themselves. It, we were worried about it being a little chilly out there, but when the kids are running around and everything, kind of works to their advantage to keep them cool and and uh, keep them running, and I think they had a great time. Now, maybe the adults weren't having such a great time, but the kids did, and that's who it's for, so that was a blessing. So thank you all for who all helped and, and were able to pray through it and, and help and have hands to it. It was a real uh, team effort there, and, and uh, I think it went very smoothly. All right, let's pray, and we'll get started into Hebrews 6. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the opportunity for us to have this midweek time with you, this time where we get to just soak in all of your word and uh, let it affect us and change us, encourage us and refresh us. And we pray that you do that by your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd have full access to all of our heart and all of our mind. And would you lead and guide us into all truth tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter six is a wonderful chapter. I don't know how far I'll get. I can't make any promises. I'm, i I usually try to do an entire chapter. I think it's important to get through God's Word, but there's so many important doctrines in this. Um, and I'll explain why it's important to get these doctrines down as we go through it. So I don't want to rush it. I want to make sure we understand these things. Last week, we left off with how wonderful Jesus is. In fact, the first five chapters are really about that. But he left off on a little bit of a sour note. Remember I said I didn't want to leave us on a sour note, so I tried to put an upbeat spin on it. It was a little difficult because the writer was a little upset that he was still feeding them milk. By this time, they ought to be able to chew their own food, be able to prepare their own meals, and go beyond the basics of just milk. Now, the Bible is often... Uh, compared to the pure milk of the word. And, and, and that's a different analogy. I mean, they're using the same thing, but it's, it's meant differently. Of course, the pure milk of the word, there's nothing better. But in this analogy, in Hebrews, he's saying we need to go beyond as if a toddler is progressing through the, uh, their, their ability to digest and, and take in more nutrition in different ways, not just milk. Not always prepared, not always warmed up, not always... Uh, just so catered to, they ought to be able to go beyond. And so he picks up that same thought in chapter 6. He carries that on through to this chapter 6. He doesn't waste any time. In fact, he knows he ought to be able to teach what he's about to teach. And he leaves them with the thought, just because you need milk and should be eating solid food but can't, I'm going to solid food anyway. Is part of it. We had a struggle. I don't know if Seth's listening. Hopefully he's teaching and won't be able to call me out on this, but that kid was hard to keep full. He just was. Kid was always an eater as a baby, you know. I mean, as a baby, we were mixing cereal in his bottle just to keep him stuffed and packed so he'd sleep a little bit longer, you know. And so we quickly knew he needed to get some solid food in him because he was growing so fast. I think as Christians, you know, there's just... We all grow at different rates, but eventually we all need to get there. And so the writer here says, I'm moving right along. Whether you're ready or not, we're going to go right into some deeper doctrines. And so he leaves them with the idea and leaves us with the idea tonight that you better, if you, if you can't keep up, you better catch up. 
I, I, we're not going to wait around. You need to move on. He leaves the responsibility in their hands. I think that's important upon their shoulders. I'm going to, I'm going to move on. Now, if you, if you don't know the basic principles of the faith, you've got some homework to do, he says, but we're not wasting any more time in this class talking about those things. I've already taught them. You've already heard them. You ought to know them. If you don't, I guess you need more time in your books, basically. So he leaves them with that responsibility. Verse one, therefore, Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, of the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. We're going beyond those things. There are... um, There is something called the Great Commission. Most of us know it, or at least have heard of it, the Great Commission. Um, But most, honestly, most of the Great Commission is filled halfway all over the world. It's only half. The Great Commission reads like this. It's in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And most people believe that's where the Great Commission ends. And so many ministries focus on and and almost mock those who go beyond that. Come on, you need to get people saved. Salvation is the most important thing. If you're not getting people saved, save, 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 save. And so every time they meet, it's the same elementary principles trying to get the same group that's been saved since last week saved again, over and over and over again. Verse 20 is the second part of the Great Commission. Teaching them, these disciples, these people that have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to observe all things that I have commanded you. The teaching of the entirety of the Word of God is a part of the Great Commission. Anybody not doing that is not fulfilling the Great Commission. It's that important. We just somehow lost it. It is easy to give the gospel every Sunday. It's hard to prepare a teaching on the next chapter. And from verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the entirety of Scripture, Paul says, I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Jesus says, I want you to teach them the whole counsel of God, all of it. Don't stop. There's a, danger, well, there's a danger and there's a reason for it. The basic elementary principles, which are the... See, and it's hard for me because I, as I read through these one through three, I want to teach them. But I'm not supposed to. The, the, the teaching tonight tells me I'm not supposed to. So it's very difficult to not go into these things, so I won't. But repentance, faith, baptisms, plural, different kinds of baptisms. There's water, there's fire. There's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. All those baptisms, you ought to know all of that. Every believer ought to know all of that. It already should be banked. I got it. And I can teach it and I can share it. I know it so well that I can give it out if I need to. I ought to be able to talk to people about repentance from dead works and moving into the faith of God. I ought to be able to tell people why working for salvation is no good and my belief in Jesus and resting in the finished work of the cross is, is, is there. That's what we're supposed to do. Laying on of hands. We ought to know all about that. And ought to move on from that. Ought to be able to tell people about what it means to lay hands on people, whether that's for ministry or for gifts or whatever it may be, for healing, all those things. That ought to be all known. Every church should know that. Every believer should know that already. That's the basic principles of the faith. Resurrection from the dead. We shouldn't even be arguing about that. We're all going to be raised from the dead. We might be raptured, but if you die before the rapture, you'll be raised from the dead. It's automatic. We got it. Eternal judgment. Not just judgment. Every single believer in the entire world ought to know about eternal judgment. That is the reason we come to Christ, is because he took that eternal judgment away from us. Saved us. Okay, so we've got all that. Once you have those foundations, that's wonderful. You're saved. You're sealed. You're going to heaven. And that is the most important thing, of course. But to You're not going to die right away. It'd be one thing if you got saved and that was it and God just took you home. We wouldn't need to do chapter or verse 20 of the Great Commission. But you're not. 
People get saved, and now they've got to walk down here, and they've got to live down here, and they've got to be an example, and they've got to be ambassadors, and we have to be able to share what's in our heart, what God has done for us. And we have to maintain our faith for the next whoever, how long, I don't know how long you're going to live, but you need to stay saved, he's talking about. Every doctrine we layer upon top, uh, on top of that verse 19, the Great Commission, being saved, these elementary principles, is just another bulletproof layer for you. It helps, it solidifies, it helps you defend, it keeps you from being so vulnerable. What he's concerned with here is as I'm writing to you Hebrews, who have moved from the Jewish faith, from the Old Testament, to the new covenant of Jesus Christ, I see you walking backwards because you're only saved. You don't have anything to protect you. You haven't learned enough to defend yourself. You're vulnerable and you're weak and you're moving back to old covenant things because that's all you know. A very dangerous thing. The second scripture I brought up was Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. These are gifts or offices that Jesus Christ himself gives to certain people, not everybody. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might full or that he might fill all things. And he, Jesus himself, gave some, not all, to be apostles. That's up to him who he gives that gift to or that office to. Some are prophets. Some are evangelists. That'd be the verse 19 of the Great Commission. And some pastors and teachers. That's the verse 20. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Becoming a part of the body of Christ is the evangelist's job. That's what helps the body of Christ grow. But the equipping of the body of Christ to do the work. That's the teacher's and the pastor's job. To make sure that the thumb does what it's supposed to do and knows how to do it and knows how to do it as unto the Lord in humility. All these things are necessary and you only get that from going through the entirety of Scripture. I'm afraid some people don't know the difference between teaching from the Bible and teaching the Bible. I've made strong statements in the past. There's a reason God planted Calvary Chapel here in Maryville, and it's not because he needed another church. It's because the word of God, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, has never been taught here. Never. They've taught from the Bible, I know, the deafening silence as I say that out loud again. It's not an arrogance thing. It's that the difference between teaching from the Bible and teaching the entirety of scriptures, they're two different things. Anybody takes five or six verses every Sunday morning and, and sets it down in front of themselves, whatever pastor that is, and they develop a teaching around that. Maybe bring out a specific principle on marriage or a specific principle on child rearing, but it's, it's this grab from all over. And never the teaching through the entirety of scripture that's so important to have. You know how many things we've covered that have, and I don't know how many times I've heard that here, and I'm not, I'm trying not to toot our own horn here, but I'm so blessed by the people that come out of those denominations who have been there for 20 or 30 years and saying, I never knew any of this. We were never taught any of this. Why not? For decades you've been in a church and you've never covered some of these passages. The church is left vulnerable right now when they don't know the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. And I think that's mean. I think that's unloving. I'm not trying to compare and I'm not trying to exalt our church above anybody else's. But getting people saved is wonderful. But as a shepherd, as someone who's in charge of a flock, if you love them, you'll continue to equip them. You'll continue to protect them and give them everything they need to buy themselves Stand. It's so important. The writer here is frustrated. You can hear it in his writings. You ought to be able to handle solid food, but you can't. We're still talking and arguing about and going over again the same basic foundations of the faith, and we ought to know those things by now. We ought to be way beyond that. You ought to be teachers, he said. But still, you can't. 
2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we've just studied this recently. And we know this scripture, they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, Timothy, be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, do chapter or verse 19, for sure. But fulfill your ministry. He obviously wasn't very good at 19. Whether you're called to be an evangelist or not, you still need to do the work of an evangelist. And thus this Sunday, I made my best attempt at leading people to Jesus Christ for the first time. Maybe somebody got saved. I don't know. The room cleared out pretty quick afterwards. I don't know that I'm called to that. I do know what I'm called to do, though, and that's to be a teacher of God's Word. And I'll never, ever stop, ever. It's so needed. It is so needed. So those are the basic elementary principles. And you have to examine for yourself, do I know these things? I don't know if you do or not. I hope you do. If you don't, you've got some homework to do. You ought to be able to teach these things. And it's for your benefit. It's not mean. It's not anything other than a teacher. I've had many teachers I think I can name almost all of them. I don't remember who exactly my fourth grade teacher was. I know my fifth, sixth, one through, I know them all. And every one of them at one point, I think even my dad at the kitchen table, ever do math at the kitchen table with your dad? That is not a fun thing to do. Because if you're dense, you're dense. If you can't figure it out, you can't figure it out. Saying it over again the same way you said it last time isn't going to help me because I don't understand what you're saying to me. And it gets frustrating for them as it is for me. But eventually the person says, the teacher, and the, look, the class can't wait. We're moving on. There's some remedial work for you to do on the side to hopefully catch up. But we're not holding the whole class back because you. I, I, I hear that in this in this writer. I don't know if you know these things or not. You probably don't, but you need to. You need to know these things. So that's a good thing to do. We're going to move on. Otherwise, you never move on. You never move on. And we need to. Verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. That's a hard one to, to teach. Here's what I know the rest of the Scriptures tell us. The rest of the Scriptures tell us that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, whoever lives to make intercession for us. So he isn't talking about sinning once you're saved. He's talking about leaving the faith. The audience here, the recipients of this letter are Hebrews who were Jews, became Christians, and are going back to. They're leaving Christ, and they're going back to the old covenant. Can't do that. And so he's saying something very strong here. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God, these are making these assumptions that they all have, and the powers of this age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. What are they going to repent from is the idea. Let me give you some scriptures that might help. And I don't know how long, yeah, I've got to read it all, um, but that's okay. We need to take our time on these things. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. It's the abiding section of scripture, where you abide in Christ. If you don't know, praise God, but you're going to find out tonight. There is an argument in the church that there are some that believe once saved, always saved, and others believe that you can lose your salvation. Some people believe that you're just chosen by God. Others believe that you have to choose God. And there's this mix, and they kind of categorize it into two groups, Calvinism and Arminianism. Well, at Calvary Chapel, we're both. We're supposed to be both. We truly believe that God is completely sovereign in control of everything, and yet we believe within that sovereignty we have free will. And how that works, I don't know, but the Bible clearly teaches both. 
He clearly teaches that we can choose, choose this day whom you will serve. What a mean thing to say if you can't. Come drink of this water freely, if you will. Whoever so, whoever so wills, come. Well, it's kind of hard to will to come if you haven't been willed to come. You know, not enough. On the other hand, on the Armenian side, we can lose our salvation. We can get saved. We can lose our salvation. We can get saved. Well, we got some problems with that. We're not once saved, always saved. Nor can we do what this writer is telling us here in verses 4 through 6. So there's this abiding thing in John 15 that really helps us understand it, I think. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You've got to stay attached. The implication is you don't have to stay attached. Why would he tell them to abide if they had no choice or there was no option for anything else? How can I not abide? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Abide. I don't want anybody comfortable in their sin or away from God. I'm not here to give people encouragement in their rebellion against God. If you feel distant from God, if you're not sure about your salvation, if you think maybe you've gone too far, maybe you have, I don't know. Here's how you know not to feel that way. Get as close to Jesus as possible, not as far away from him as possible. How far can I go? How long is the tether of salvation? What a ridiculous thing to say for someone who's supposed to be madly in love with their shepherd. Are you madly in love with Jesus Christ? Or do you want to do as much as you can without actually going to hell? You know, I just want to be saved, but I also want Jesus to leave me alone in my sin. I don't want him to judge me. I just want, to, I just want fireproof insurance. Abide. He's looking for people to bear fruit. He expects fruit. We've talked about that. When he doesn't see fruit, anybody attached to the vine of Jesus Christ produces fruit. They just do. The lack of fruit shows there's a detachment. Something's not there that's supposed to be there. If you're bearing a little bit of fruit and you should be bearing more fruit, he prunes you. The funny thing about pruning, um, I learned a little bit about that. I've had so many jobs. I can't believe my If I wrote a resume, it's the most ridiculous resume you've ever read. And so unimpressive, by the way. Plantscapes. Anybody water plants in a high-rise before for a living? I have. Oh, my goodness. So I learned how to prune as I took my botany classes at Metropolitan Community College in Omaha, Nebraska. Oh, my goodness. Back in the day. Anyway, (laughs) the plant takes a lot of energy in and can spend a lot of energy doing a lot of things it doesn't need to be doing if you want it to do a specific thing. If you want it to produce something, then you start trimming things off you don't want it working on, is the idea. I don't, like a, a grapevine, you've seen them do that. I mean, this is what he's using as an example. If you go to a vineyard, maybe you'll, they'll explain it to you, why they do what they do. But there's this wonderful root stock there, and the branches go up. And you've maybe seen them tethered and going along, like a T along the top. Well, the goal is to get as much fruit from it as possible without the plant wasting so much energy on foliage, but enough energy on foliage that it can produce the fruit. And so finding that balance And ironically, sometimes some of the best vintage grapes are produced during some of the hardest, stressful years for that plant. 
makes some of the most unique fruit ever and an abundance of it. Sometimes you'll go along and watch all these oak trees or something that has, that has the acorns on it, you know, and you'll look and you'll see nothing, nothing, nothing. And then this one's just covered with, you know, like, what in the, what's the deal with that? You know, I mean, they're all, they're all female, the ones I'm looking at anyway. Why are they, why are they all producing like that? Why is this one? Because it's probably about to die. And it's about to put off as much as it can to continue the process. Well, guys, we're called to take up our cross and die daily. I mean, there's so much in this. And if, there's, if there are branches that are in our lives that are a waste of energy for us, and we're not producing the godly fruit that he saved us for, I want you focused on this. Oh, God, why did you take that away from me? Oh, God, why did you remove that person? Oh, God, why did I lose my job? And why are you doing what, what, what? I want you to produce fruit. I want you to produce godly fruit. And he's faithful to do that. He's faithful to prune us. Romans chapter 11 is another section that discusses these two verses, three verses here, four, five, and six. It's a long one. (laughs) But it does help us with what's currently going on in the news, which I try not to go to every single Wednesday night or Sunday. It does help us understand it. And if you understand chapter 11 of Romans, you understand why we support Israel. I say then, Paul says in Romans, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. This is after Christ has been rejected. This is after the crucifixion. This is a- Has he? No, Paul says. The most notable apostle in Scripture says, no, God has not cast off his people. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scriptures or what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to Elijah? I have reserved for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? What's the point of this, Paul says? Why am I saying this to you? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, another testimony of it, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down their back always. He's saying that because he's got another plan for them, another opportunity, another season for this group that seemingly has walked away from their Messiah. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled, these people that haven't believed in the Christ, that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The only reason the church exists as Gentiles, is because they rejected. We should be thanking God in a weird way that they rejected the gospel because now the gospel has come to the Gentiles. And why has the gospel come to the Gentiles? To make them jealous for him, that they might turn to him. You're being used. The church is being used as an opportunity to minister and to witness to the Jews that have not received Christ. Why do we support Israel? Because it's part of God's plan. He wants them saved and he wants to use us. It's ridiculous that anybody in the church is saying, I'm not supporting them. It's it's right in the scriptures. This is a part of the the evangelizing of a nation. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, us, you know, they rejected and we've come... And their failure riches for Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Won't it be amazing when they come to the Lord? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, 
I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. He's trying not to be rude, but I'm all about ministering to the Gentiles. If that's the only way I'm going to be able to get to my countrymen. At one point when Paul comes into the synagogue of the certain city, I can't remember which one it is. You guys will know. And they reject it. Crispus was the ruler. He was the guy in charge of the synagogue. And they rejected. He went right next door to Jason's house, a Gentile, and began to start a church right next door. Why? Did he not go across town? Why didn't he separate from them? Because he wanted them to walk. Hey, we're going, to, we're going to worship our Messiah. Where's your Messiah? Oh, you don't have a Messiah. He's trying to woo them. Paul loved the nation of Israel, so wanted his brothers and sisters. That's why I think he wrote Hebrews and didn't sign it. It sounds so much like him, doesn't it? I'm not saying it. I'm not saying who wrote this. Here, just send this letter anonymously to them and tell them everything they need to know that I've been trying to tell them for years. You know, I love it. Be that as it may, we don't know really who wrote. I speak to you Gentiles for that reason. If by any means I may provoke to them jealousy. For verse 15, if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them being a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. In other words, they got broken off, just like we read here that he's in, in, the, in the other scripture, the other passage in uh, John 15, abiding in the vine. Just because we broke them off, left us a little raw spot where we could graft in a wild olive branch. That's you Gentiles. And I don't know if you've ever had a wild fruit versus a you know, cultivated fruit. They're like half the size. But we ought not get too big in the britches. When we talk about ourselves, the church, the church, the church, home, oh, you're like half the size. We have raspberries, wild raspberries on our, on our, and they're great, but it takes forever to get, you know, they're this big. These, and the ones we, you know, that we, they're gigantic, you know, hybrids, probably terrible for you, but man, you can get a bowl quickly, but you want to get a bowl of these? Are you kidding me? Well, he's just saying, you're the wild olive branch. You've been grafted in because they were broken off. Oh, let me find my spot. Do not boast against the branches, he says, verse 18. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but that the root supports you. Don't ever forget that. Jesus is the root. And it supports you. He supports you. That's it. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. That's right. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. There's another opportunity for branches to be away from the root, for someone to not abide. It's another example of the scriptures. It's hard to avoid these things. It's very clear. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. God is still interested. He still wants them saved. He still wants them grafted in. They haven't been tossed in the fire yet. There's no, there's no hellfire yet. There's no lake of fire yet. That doesn't happen way till the end. Revelation 20. Way back there. None of that. For if you were cut out of the uh, olive tree which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? It'll almost be a better fit. It'll almost be a better fit is what he's saying. He's not almost. He's just flat out saying that. Now, I don't want us to all walk away saying, mm, I'm just a Gentile, you know, kind of thing. Praise the Lord. You know, we're saved. Praise the Lord that he wants to use us to minister to them, to support them, to cause them to be jealous for our God. Why are you supporting me? My Jesus, your Messiah, tells me to. We don't even believe in your Messiah. We, no, we don't, even, we don't buy that. I know. 
and yet we're still supporting you. Because it's the loving kindness of Christ that leads men to repentance. Even for them, and that's what we're to do. For I do not desire, verse 25, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's important. He loved them in the Old Testament. He never stops loving them, even though my love, my, my calling upon your life, it's irrevocable. I'm never, I'm never, if anybody's going to keep their part of the bargain, it's going to be God. And thank goodness, the point of this is, don't be so excited for those who believe this, that God rejected a people group through unbelief so that they could accept a new people group and now we're the new beloved and they're the old beloved divorced from God. Because if that's how he is, then how easily could he just move on to another group with our unbelief? The whole point of this is to teach us he's faithful, he's faithful, he'll always be faithful. He never fails. I do not abandon you. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. For God has committed... Oh, wait, where was I? 30? 30. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. You were disobedient. Quit calling them disobedient. That's how you got saved. Through your disobedience, God reached, he reached out to you. He's going to do the same. Finally, Hebrews 10. Verses 26 through 27. We'll hit this again a couple chapters from now, but I wanted to read it now. Because it refers to what we were talking about, verses 4 through 6. Let's not forget he's talking about not being able to come back because you've gone too far, you've walked away from God. I think this helps us understand that. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Here's what he means. Here's what he said. I'm going to give you a sense of the meaning. That's all I'm trying to do here. If I receive Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, I am saved by the blood of Jesus. If I later on change my mind and reject the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, there no longer remains a sin or sacrifice for my sin. I've decided to go it alone. That's the idea. When I walk away from Jesus, there is no lamb of God taking away my sin. I've rejected him, is the point. I mean, it's very simple. And so the writer here is simply saying, look, I'm trying to make you bulletproof with going beyond the basic elementary principles of the faith so that you can stand in these hard times. When the devil comes up against you, when he sends his enemies against you, when the world, the flesh, and the devil are attacking your faith and your stability, I'm giving you so much they can't do anything. They can't knock you down. Verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain and often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, remember that he says, you're beloved. We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He knows he sounds harsh. He knows that. It's a hard thing to be the tough parent, right? It is. 
You don't know that it's always appreciated. Well, it isn't. I don't even have to guess. It isn't always appreciated, you know. And oftentimes there can be a battle between hard parent and soft parent. And when the hard parent's too hard, the kid runs to the soft parent. And the soft parent says, oh, boy, you're just, you know, you're, that's too much kind of thing. I'm usually the soft parent, if you can believe it. I know that it sounded harsh, Paul said, when I said all these things to you, that, that you should have solid food, that you ought to be able to chew and be beyond, that you ought to be teachers by now, that you ought, we ought to lay these things down. The, the, the basic principles should be, we, we should be way beyond that. I know, he says. I know that. Just remember, he, he calms himself down. You're beloved. I want more for you. You know? I want you to do better. I want you to succeed. I don't want you to be in jeopardy. I don't want you to be vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. I want you to be protected. And if I have the authority and the ability and the wherewithal to help you become more protected, it is my duty, Paul says, and my resp- or the writer of Hebrews says, and my responsibility to make sure that I give you what I have. So important. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints, and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. I love that you're working for God right now, that you're serving God right now. All I'm doing is telling you all this so that you can continue to do that until the day you die, or he takes you home. I'm just preserving that beautiful work you've already started. That you do not become sluggish. That's a nice word. There's a little one beside it. And if you go to your center call of reference, it says lazy. I just don't want you to be sluggish. Sounds better, doesn't it? Then quit being lazy. Study. <laughs> I appreciate him. I need, I need lazy. That's, what I, that's the word I need. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Look at the people who have gone before you, who have finished the race, who have gone through all the battles that you've gone through, and you're not being tempted beyond what other people have been tempted. You're not having more battles than anybody else in the whole wide world of Christendom. Look at the people that have done well through these battles. You can do it too, is the idea. Follow their faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast and immovable. That's all he's saying here in 9 through 12. I want you rock solid and immovable. You know what the hard thing? I was just thinking about this. When he wrote to Timothy, and I think I have this cross-reference. In the last days, people will not endure sound doctrine. So I want you to have the sound doctrine. He's basically telling Timothy, you're going to be the guy that nobody hears. You know how frustrating that would be? Don't let the size of your audience in front of you, Timothy, dictate how you teach or what you teach. Make sure that you're teaching the truth, whether anybody's there or everybody's there. Because in the last days, understand this, there's going to be fewer and fewer people that want to hear, Timothy, what you say, which is the pure milk of the word, which is the truth. They're going to find other things that are, make them more, less, just 19, just saved, just baptized. I'm good. I, I can't handle anymore. I've got enough going on in this world. When God is the whole time saying, I'd like to cut those branches off that think they deserve more of your time. No, we've got to do that. Verse 20, learning and growing and protecting. Matthew 13, 1 through 9, similar subject. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. 
And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good soil or in good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Your job, he says in 9 through 12, is to labor and to labor in love and to serve. You're not responsible for what kind of soil the seed that you're planting lands on. I've heard recently many teachers in Calvary Chapel as well saying, well, we can have a part to play in that a little bit. I mean, there's no reason to go out into the middle of the forest and and throw seeds you know aren't going to get sunlight. There is some preparation of the soil that can be done, but that's not what the parable teaches. In fact, he explicitly leaves it out. There is no preparation of the soil. The sower just goes and scatters seed. Most of it, he probably picked a pretty good field for the most part. Probably some rocks, some hard spots, some paths where people walk through his field. But he's not worried about that. Leave the path, scattering the seed. And it's going to grow up enough to cover all the loss, all the wasted seed in those places. It's going to produce some 30, some 100. I mean, a 60-fold increase. It more than covers. The sower... The Hebrews here, you people, myself, our job is to sow the word of God. And yes, sometimes it bounces. And sometimes it doesn't take root. Sometimes it starts off great, but the cares of life choke it out and people get sidetracked. And that's hard to see and it's hard to take in. There's a lot of pain involved in that for all of us, I'm sure. I invested, I tried, I thought, and I prayed, and I just withered away, you know, kind of thing. All your beloved, he says. God doesn't see or doesn't forget your your work and your labor of love that you've shown towards his name by ministering to the saints. Keep ministering. Keep doing it. Keep scattering seeds. So important. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath uh, for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes. Thus, God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. Immutability, unchangeableness. I thought that was a made-up word, but it's a real word. He cannot change of his counsel. Confirmed by an oath that by two immutable things, what are they? There's a promise God made, and he can't lie. And he did an oath on the promise. That's a double whammy for us, okay? In which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. There is a promise. There is an oath. What he's talking about here, this promise... I've got to cover it. It's the most important thing. What he's not saying outright is that the person who said those things in that quote, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. Can I read that to you? I'm going to go back to the text. It's in Genesis 22, 15 through 19. Who is he quoting? Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham. And the word angel is capitalized. It's Jesus in the Old Testament speaking to Abraham. It's what we call a Christophanes. There's a Theophanes and a Christophanes. A Theophanes is God showing or appearing so that people can see a manifestation of him. Or a Christophanes is actually Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself... I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. The idea of bringing that up in this chapter to the Hebrews was for them to say, where was that quote? That was the angel of the Lord that said that. He could swear by no higher. He's saying Jesus is God. 
The angel of the Lord couldn't swear by the Lord because he is the Lord. It's Jesus in the Old Testament. It's a huge thing. And so he's gently and carefully taking these Hebrews to understand he's your high priest. He's the chosen one. He's the Christ. He's the son. He's always existed. He always will exist. He's equal to the father. And then takes him to this quote. You guys all love that story in Genesis 22. Well, you know who said that, right? It was the one I'm talking about in this book, Jesus Christ. Very important. Verse 19, and we'll close. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. The presence there is capitalized, the person behind the veil. Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, the one we're talking about here, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He circles it all the way back around. Making the, he's connecting the dots for them. He's always been, he's always trying to get a hold of us. Even from Abraham, he's been trying to get a hold of us and speaking to us. This isn't the first time we've encountered Jesus. He isn't a new kid on the block. He was the one that promised Abraham he was going to fulfill all the promises and then made an oath by no one higher than himself. I have so many cross-references for this, and we don't have time. I'll put them in the comments. I have to. Anchor, that's the only one I'll do. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's the one we previously did. So it's a very important cross-reference. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord, we thank you for not only saving us, not only setting us upon the rock, the firm foundation, but now we build on that foundation. And everything we learn from your, from your text, from your scriptures, makes us stronger, makes us taller. Everything, it just increases us. Helps us to understand our faith, helps us understand you, helps us to communicate to others, have a full working understand, understanding of salvation. We are working out our salvation even tonight. Becoming better acquainted with it in a way that we can articulate it to people in our own words if we need to. Why we believe what we believe and how sure it is that we believe it. I pray that you bless these people with opportunities this week to do this, to share these things, God. We do want to do verse 19 of the Great Commission. We do want people to become disciples, to become saved, to be baptized, but we also want them to grow and to mature. So God, help us to be a part of that plan any way we can. Lord, We pray for the peace of Jerusalem tonight. We pray for Israel. We pray that your hand would be upon them and that uh, we could be a blessing to them in any way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good night.